So as you've heard in my prayer, and maybe you saw an email on this Thursday, the theme of our message this morning is the topic of giving. You can see it on the slide there, giving by example is the name of our our message this morning, and not the giving of your time or your talents, although those are good enough, but the giving of your treasures. This morning we're going to take up that, that topic. If you've been with us the past couple months, you know that we are currently studying the Gospel of John. We just finished John chapter 4, and we will pick up John chapter 5 next week. And so if you're here with us next week, we'll, we'll be continuing through that study. So then, as we're working through the Gospel of John, why pause for a week and take up kind of this topical message or a topical message on uh, the topic of giving? Why do that? Well, I'll give you three reasons. Now, these three reasons could be enough. We could preach a sermon just on three, these three reasons. However, I just uh, to, to make my point, uh, here are three reasons why we need to consider the topic of giving this morning. The first is this. Giving is a spiritual discipline. Giving is a spiritual discipline. Now, spiritual disciplines are those practices, those things we do that are found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth in our lives. They are, you might say, the habits of our devotion, Bible reading, prayer, service, giving, fasting, worship, all of these are spiritual disciplines. These are the things we do to grow in our godliness. Giving, like the other spiritual disciplines, is one of those means that God uses in our lives to grow us in godliness, to conform us to His image, to make us more like Christ. Giving is a spiritual discipline, not only that, but giving, number two, giving hasn't been addressed. That is, it hasn't been addressed specifically in some time. We often talk about the disciplines of Bible reading, of prayer, of evangelism. We're talking about those things all the time, but we seldom specifically pick up the topic of giving. And so, uh, that being said, to neglect this spiritual discipline would be to fail to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, which we're commanded to do. Furthermore, the Bible actually says a lot about money. There's a lot in the Bible about money. So it seems appropriate from time to time for us to to talk specifically about giving. I might even argue maybe once a year. It seems like a good idea to kind of come back and address this topic. Uh, Giving is a spiritual discipline. Giving hasn't been addressed in some time. And number three... Giving makes an impact. The pretty simple reality. Care costs money. Listen to Acts 4, verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Of course, this is the early church, right? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Real needs exist in the church. And when church members give those needs, well, they can be met. We can take care of people and take care of the ministry of the church. And this is true with regards to benevolence, as in this passage in Acts 4, but it's true in missions, and it's true with regard to just the local church ministry. Now, I'm not saying that 
we just throw money at our problems or that if we just give more money, then all of our problems are going to go away. I'm not suggesting that that's true. Um, however, giving does impact ministry, and the more money we have, the greater impact ministry we can have. Additionally, so giving is a spiritual discipline. Giving hasn't been addressed in some time, and giving makes an impact. Additionally, I do want you to know, I want to say that this message does not stem from any disappointment, uh, no dissatisfaction, no, uh, uh, no discouragement on my part or on the part of your elders. On the contrary, I would say, your elders are encouraged by the faithfulness, uh, by your faithfulness and by the faithfulness of our God to use you in your giving. And I do hope you know, maybe you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you haven't been around a long time, but uh, your elders, the elders of this church, know nothing about your giving. It is not our practice to know any of those details. In fact, the only thing we know about your giving is what's printed on the back of your bulletin. That's the only thing we know. We don't know any specific details about your giving, nor do we need to or, or want to. We don't know those things. We should also say that here at Rosedale Bible Church, uh, of course, we know that we stand in a long line, uh, generations of faithfulness and good stewardship as it, re as re it relates to money. This church is over 100 years old. I, I found out that that building out there, don't worry, your kids are safe, but that building out there was originally constructed in 1923. Now, it's been remodeled here and there in places, but the, the frame, the bones of that building is from 1923, which makes that building out there 100 years old. This church has been here a long time, and so it just is, is a testimony uh, to generations of faithfulness and good stewardship. The people who have called this church theirs have given of their time, their talents, and, of course, their treasures. And you have given of your time, your talent, and your treasures. And you continue to do that faithfully week in and week out, month in and month out. And so, speaking for your elders, we are profoundly grateful for your financial support of this ministry. And we believe that you are committed to seeing this church, I won't be here, you won't be here, to see this church here in another hundred years. We believe that you're committed to that, and we're thankful for that, for sure. So, in light of the fact, this is all introduction, right? In light of the fact that giving is a spiritual discipline, that we haven't specifically addressed the topic in some time, that giving makes an impact without any pretense, uh, without any a signaling or tone of disappointment, without any uh, dissatisfaction or discouragement, I'd like us to take up the topic of giving this morning. Is that enough of a, of a preface? Okay, I really tried to stretch that one, so, and I meant every word. So, and I'd like to do this from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and so that's where we're going to be this morning. Although it is a topical message in the sense that I'm coming to Scripture with the topic of giving, it's really an expository message because what I'm going to do is I'm just going to preach the passage of Scripture and we're going to learn from it about giving. So we do need to address a couple of things uh, with regard to the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians before we kind of get there. Uh, if I were to capture this book in a word, I would use the word visceral. Uh, it's, a, it's an emotional book. In this book, Paul wears his heart on his sleeve. We see his affection. We see his anger. 
and we see his agony on display throughout the book. In one place, Paul defends himself in light of false teachers or super apostles. However, as we, as we know, Paul doesn't often offer a, a, a typical defense, and he doesn't in this book. He does not boast in his strengths, that's not his approach, but he boasts in his weaknesses. In fact, if I were to suggest a theme verse for the entire book, it would be 2 Corinthians 12.10, which says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Which is kind of a fitting summary for the topic of giving as we will move forward. Of course, such a statement makes little sense in this world, but in God's economy, it's as fundamental as base running, or if you like to cook, as fundamental as chopping. It's a fundamental. Paul boasts, boasts in his weakness because weakness allowed God to make him strong. God uses weakness, you might say, to remove us from being the protagonist. The life of Paul, as revealed in this letter, teaches us that weakness allows God to play the lead role. We're just the supporting cast. Now, for all that Paul's life teaches us, we have to remember that his life wasn't a mother goose story. This is real stuff here. It's not some fairy tale. And this second letter to the Corinthians is no brother's grim story. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Again, it's a, it's a very emotional book. The fact that the Lord preserved two letters from Paul to Corinth suggests Paul was deeply committed to the church in Corinth. And in fact, if we're to read the book very carefully, we realize he wrote other letters as well, maybe even four to the church in Corinth. Now, of course, this morning, we don't need to investigate all those details, all that background information. We don't need to learn everything about it. However, I do want you to keep in mind this visceral or emotional nature of the book. I want us to try to enter into the circumstances that surround this book in the hope that God might use it, of course, to change us, to transform us. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for training, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the man or woman of God, might be complete, perfect, equipped for every good work. That's our aim this morning. So, then what are the circumstances that surround this book? What is some of the background, at least what we need to know uh, to understand this passage of Scripture? Well, the first thing we need to know is that Paul was on a decade-long fundraising campaign. I know we don't like fundraising campaigns. We hear them on the radio, we turn them off, but Paul was a fundraiser. That's what he was doing for over 10 years. And this fundraising was for the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. We learn there there was a famine in Jerusalem. And at various places, Paul speaks of the churches taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. One such example is Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. He writes, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. 
you've read your New Testament, you, you know you kind of hear, the, hear Paul talk about this collection kind of in various places throughout the letters. That's what he's doing. He's on this fundraising campaign trying to raise money for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem during this famine. The second thing we need to know is that Paul wanted the church in Corinth to, he wanted them to participate in bringing this aid to the saints there in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians, in the middle of this book, chapters 8 and 9, right in the center of this book, uh, in light of him defending himself uh, against these false teachers, Paul attempts to inspire the Corinthians to contribute to the needs of the saints. That's what he does in chapters 8 and 9. So, how then will Paul inspire the Corinthians to give? What tactics will he employ? Catchy jingle? Promise of blessing, maybe? If you want God to do something for you, well, you need to do something for Him. No money, no miracle. Maybe guilt. It's an easy motivator. It's the easiest way to motivate people. Make them feel guilty. John Piper calls this the debtor's ethic. It goes like this. God has done so much for you. Now how much will you do for Him? Or, He gave you His life. Now how much will you give to Him? Fortunately, Paul's not a prosperity preacher. And Paul knows too much about grace to resort to the debtor's ethic. So then, how will Paul inspire the Corinthians to contribute to the needs of the saints and to support the local church with their finances? Well, as we're going to see, Paul will use the sacrificial generosity of the local church, of the Macedonians, and the sacrificial generosity of Jesus to inspire the Corinthians to contribute to the needs of the saints, giving by example. And it's my hope this morning that these examples might become a model for us. That Paul might inspire us to contribute to the needs of the saints and to support our local church with our money. And so here's the big idea this morning. It's pretty simple. Using two examples, Paul gives us three instructions on giving. Using two examples, Paul gives us three instructions on giving, and that's what we're going to pursue this morning. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of our passage this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I know I think your bulletin might say 1 through 15, but we're actually not going to get that far. We're just going to do 1 through 9. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, 
in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Again, using two examples, Paul gives us three instructions on giving. The first example we're going to see is the example of the Macedonians. The example of the Macedonians. Paul begins with a a strong attempt here in these verses to get the Corinthians' attention. This phrase, we want you to know, brothers, is something like, now pay attention. That's what's behind this. Uh, he He opens the book similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We don't want you to be unaware, he writes, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Paul wants the Corinthian church to understand his plight. Pay attention, this is what I've been going through. And here he wants them to understand the specific expression of God's grace. Pay attention, he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Paul explains this grace in the second part of the verse, this grace that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, the word grace is used in multiple ways in the New Testament, and we have a lot of different ways to use that word even today. It has the idea of charm. It has the idea of thankfulness. It's even a way to kind of capture all of salvation, Grace of God can refer to just that whole salvation package, everything that's related to salvation. Here, I think he, Paul is using this word as, as kind of a, a, the sum total of, of unmerited favor that relates to God's provision or care for His people. It's a grace that God cares for His people. So the, the Macedonians participated in this grace. I think Paul is using the word to communicate that God's grace has been given in connection with the Macedonian church. They participated in uh, bringing about this grace to God's people. God is the source of grace, and the church, of course, is the means of grace. Now, Macedonia, you don't know, is, is what we might call today Greece. The Macedonian churches were kind of northern Greece, and, and we know these churches, uh, the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Berea, all of those churches would be in this area. Those would be the churches Paul is speaking of. They are the Macedonian churches. Paul continues in verse 2, he says, It was in a severe test of affliction that their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He shares how a rich expression of giving was found in spite of serious challenges among the Macedonian church. We're not given the the specifics, but this phrase, a severe test of affliction, suggests an extensive challenge. Paul uses similar words when speaking of his own persecution. You might remember Acts 17. This was an account in Thessalonica 
where a mob was formed against Paul. You remember that man, Jason, who was pulled out of his home. There was so much unrest in the city that uh, Timothy and Silas sent Paul away. They had to get rid of him because there was so much persecution uh, that happened in the city. Of course, Paul would write later to the, the, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. These churches knew what persecution looked like. Although a formidable challenge, nothing would stop the Macedonian church from giving. So, Paul can write, again, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. If a severe test of affliction wouldn't stop them from giving, well, extreme poverty wouldn't stop them either. It seems to me it's enough to say that somebody was poor. The Bible uses an economy of words to say they were extremely poor. Well, that word extreme is, is, has the idea of the depth of the ocean. We have the phrase dirt poor. It's really what Paul is after here. It was extreme. Yet, Paul says, with affliction and poverty swirling around them, a surplus of generosity could be found. They gave extravagantly in spite of their poverty. This word overflowed speaks of something beyond what is expected. The paradox of the Macedonian gift is that a severe test, a trial, led to not suffering necessarily or emotional distress, but that severe trial led to an abundance of joy. Quite a paradox. And extreme poverty resulted in a wealth of generosity. It's upside down. It's otherworldly. I'm going to look at one more verse and then we'll draw out our first instruction. Verse 3 says this, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Given what we've discovered so far, it's no doubt, we're not surprised to hear they gave according to their means. Paul goes further. In, somewhat he's, in some ways, he's surprised. He's saying, I testify, I bear witness to this, that they gave beyond their means. They surprised me. Although it seemed they had nothing, yet they stretched themselves beyond their ability. We might say they gave to their hurt. Now, verses 2 and 3, we can draw out our first instruction on giving, and it's this. Give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Now, I realize this is a, a somewhat of a general instruction, but it's no less important. It was in spite of a severe test of affliction in spite of their extreme poverty and in spite of low expectations, that the giving of the Macedonian church was described as having a wealth of generosity. We tend to think of giving in terms of what we can afford. I'm buying a car right now. I was in a car accident. I have to buy a new car. I have to think about, what can I afford? We buy a house. Think about, what can I afford? Is this vacation does this vacation fit into my budget? Will my income bear the cost of this thing? Whatever it is. Let me remind you, Don Whitney writes, 
That giving isn't sacrificial unless you sacrifice something to give. I'll spare you the statistics, and you can do a quick Google search if you like, but it's almost always true that the more we make, the less we give. You might think that moving into a higher income bracket would compel us to give more, but it doesn't. Typically, it doesn't. On the contrary, the more we make, the less we give. How many of you have seen your children graduate from high school or college? Many of you, right? Maybe it's just kindergarten, I don't know. Uh, either way, you've seen, you've seen that, you have that kind of experience. Maybe you've seen your kids get married. Maybe you see your kids do something great or you have a friend who you've watched accomplish something grand. Maybe it brings tears to your eyes. As maybe you saw some of the news articles this week about uh, Donald, Donna Kelsey, the, the mom of, of Jason and, and Travis Kelsey, the, the two football players that were on opposing teams during the Super Bowl, which I think is the first time that's ever happened. Two brothers down there on the field. Think about watching that and, and experience that. I'm sure it was overwhelming. Of course, both of these men had already won Super Bowls. But yet still, it's compelling you think in that moment, watching those football players down there, if someone were to ask Donna, think of all the sleepless nights, the diapers you had to change, all the ruckus you put up with, with those two kids running around the house, the tens of thousands of dollars that that child cost you, all the football pads and gear that you had to buy through the years, Think, think of all the vacations that you could have had. Think of the cars you could have been driving for years. Just look at what that parenting cost you. What do you think she'd say? Doesn't matter, right? I know what she'd say. It was worth every second. It was worth every penny. It's a good reminder when you think about the challenges at home sometimes. It's worth every penny. Have you ever known anyone who made such a sacrifice that regretted it? Sure, we might miss some things. We might have enjoyed spending the money on ourselves, but in the end, we wouldn't change a thing. We wouldn't go back and do it over again. Might I suggest that if the Macedonian saints could speak from heaven, they wouldn't change a thing either. It would have been worth every trial. I acknowledge the difficulty, difficulty and the challenge before us. I know that sacrificing things is very difficult. It hurts. Yet I believe there's strong evidence to suggest that if you and I gave sacrificially, we would never regret it. Barclay writes, No gift can be in any real sense a gift unless the giver gives with it a bit of himself. That is why personal giving is always the highest kind of giving. I think the example of the Macedonian church compels us to ask, do we give sacrificially? Do we give sacrificially? There's another instruction found in these verses. Look at 8.2 again, chapter 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
Here's a second instruction. Give sacrificially, and secondly, give joyfully. Give joyfully. If you want, you can glance over at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You know this verse. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. One man said, there are three kinds of giving. Grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. (laughs) Grudge giving says, I have to. Duty giving says, I ought to. Thanksgiving says, I want to. Don Whitney again. Some people give to God like they fork over to the IRS after an audit. Others give to God like they pay their electric bill or maybe the gas bill here in Bakersfield. But few people give to God like they give an engagement ring to their fiancé. Some give because they won't some give because they know they can't keep it. Others give because they believe they owe it. And a happy few give because they say they can't help it. Whitney offers the following illustration. If one Sunday morning your pastor, I suppose that's me, <laughs> announced the head of one of the world's largest drug cartels is here today and we're going to take up a collection for his army. I'm not sure you'd be willing or cheerful in your giving. You might give, but it would probably be out of fear if you did give. But if I said, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the foyer, and every penny you give today will be given exclusively for the work of His kingdom. Whitney says, the only thing lighter than our hearts would be our wallets. Because we realize that we were giving directly to God himself. It's the heart of the believer. I read about a church in Africa where the people danced down the aisles to present their offerings to God during a worship service. Now, I think that would be disruptful here. Uh, Probably wouldn't work in our context. But I wonder, does our giving flow from so much joy? Is it, you know, when I give, is it, is it as if I'm dancing down the aisle because I'm overfull, uh, overflowing with joy? George Guthrie writes, The love and commitments of our hearts are seen through the window of our joy. The love and commitments of our hearts are seen through the love, through the window of our joy. The example of the Macedonian church compels us to ask, yes, do we give sacrificially, but also here, do we give joyfully? So we have our first two instructions, give sacrificially, give joyfully. Let's look at verse 4, and we'll find a third instruction. Paul continues, begging us earnestly, he says, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He's continued to explain the generosity of the Macedonians. They begged Paul to participate in the relief effort of the saints. It's ironic that the givers are doing the begging. It's not typical. In other times, the givers would be begged to give. Not here. Not the case in a healthy church. Healthy churches, these were. If you should know anything about the church of Thessalonica... For example, in two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to those churches, he never says anything negative about them. 
He only praises them. In fact, the, the resounding kind of exhortation to those churches is excel still more. You're doing well. Keep going. Keep laboring hard. Paul writes to the Philippians, Philippians 4.15, And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He commends these churches. They're strong, healthy churches. We're not surprised then to hear that these churches pleaded with Paul to participate in taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. They begged him. Healthy churches see giving as a privilege. Notice Paul says they begged us earnestly for the favor, the word there's grace, for the grace or the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. This reminds us of that first verse in the chapter. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The Macedonian churches saw giving, giving as an expression of God's grace. And they begged to participate in that. We want to we be a part of that. We want to be the means of God's grace to those saints in Jerusalem. They wanted to be given the privilege of entering into God's work. And so then we have a third instruction. And it's this, give voluntarily. Give voluntarily. I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but outsiders, unbelievers, people who are not Christians or they don't participate in the local church, they often think that we have to pay, that you and I pay to be a part of a church. And if you've ever encountered that before, that we pay our dues. It's some kind of club. You know, when the offering plates go by, we're, we're paying a bill. People actually think that. Maybe you thought that before you're a Christian. Well, we know that God doesn't send us a bill. We know that Becky's not in the office, you know, putting statements together and sending them out to us. That's not true. It doesn't happen. Again, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God's not sending us a bill. This past Tuesday, you celebrated Valentine's Day. I hope you did. Other, otherwise, you're in trouble. <laughs> you celebrated Valentine's Day, and imagine... If I came home from work and I greeted Kate with two dozen roses, and right, I pull, pull those two dozen roses from behind my back, happy Valentine's Day. And you know, Kate, she says, oh, you shouldn't have. You, you shouldn't have done that. It's, you know, roses are expensive. Well, they are. You know, roses are expensive. Two dozen roses is probably like $50. That's a lot of money. You shouldn't have done that. Now, of course, I turn, right? I'm going to turn to her and I'm going to say, Honey, it's Valentine's Day. It's my duty to get you some roses. <laughs> now, how do you think that's going to go? I don't think I want to be around as she trims the stems on those roses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, suppose I do the same thing. I offer her the same two dozen roses. I come home, happy Valentine's Day, and she, again, tries to shut me down. You shouldn't have. And imagine, I turn to her, her and I say, Honey, there's nothing I would rather do with my money than spend it on you. Now, if I could pull that off, 
it makes all the difference in the world. Motive makes all the difference in the world. It's a completely, it's the same exact thing, but it's totally different based on my motive. The same is true with God. We don't give out of duty or out of formality. We give voluntarily and out of love for Him. And this is what the Macedonian churches did. They even went further. They begged Paul. Makes me think, I wonder if I would have begged the clerk at Albertsons for roses. I I wouldn't have. Now, I'd like to support this third instruction, give voluntarily from another place in the text, but verse 8, but before I do, I just I want to kind of summarize verses 5 through 7, kind of move somewhat quickly through those verses and get to verse 8. Verse 5, Paul says, in this, not as we expected the giving, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul continues to explain how they gave. They gave not as Paul expected, and they gave with the right priorities. He says, They gave themselves first, or most importantly, to the Lord. They gave themselves first, most importantly, to the Lord, and then they gave to us. They had the right priorities. Of course, giving themselves to the Lord meant the natural implication that they would then give themselves to Paul's mission. So as an an outworking of giving themselves over to the Lord, they gave also to Paul. They participated in the ministry of the local church with their giving. The commitment of Paul's mission is then understood as an expression of their commitment to the Lord. In in verse 6, Paul is going to start to kind of transition away from the Macedonian example, and he's going to start to transition into an exhortation to the Corinthians. So he's already set this, in in verses 1 through 5, he sets this example uh, first, and now he's going to transition because he's going to get to the Corinthians and what what he expects them to do. And so in verse 6, he starts to do that, turns a corner, you might say, and he writes, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Remember, these are real letters. These are real people. These are real events that are happening. And so we find out in this letter that Titus had already been there. And we also find out that they had already started some collection. They had already begun this work. So here, Paul is bringing Titus into the picture, and he believes that Titus is the natural choice to handle this collection. And he does so mainly, I think, because the Corinthians received Titus well. And so if you look at chapter 7, verse 7, uh, he writes, and not, as it regards to Titus, or as it relates to Titus, chapter 7, verse 7, and not only by his coming, Titus is coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This, these, are, these are fond words as it relates to Titus. And if you kind of fast forward to verse 13, continuing to talk about Titus, and beside our own comfort, comfort we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, 
so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So Titus is the natural choice to kind of lead the charge with this collection. He had started it already, and the Corinthians liked Titus. He he was received well by them, so it made sense for him to finish or bring the collection to a conclusion. Paul finally completes this transition away from the Macedonians and towards the Corinthians in verse 7, where he says, "But But as you excel in everything... In faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Notice how careful Paul is with this exhortation. He uses a, a strong encouragement to pivot into uh, an exhortation, a challenge, so to speak. He affirms that the Corinthians are excelling in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and love. And since they're excelling in these things, well, no doubt, they're going to continue to excel in this act of grace, this act of giving. He doesn't doubt them at all. He knows they're going to come come along board with him in this. And so with that kind of summary of verses 5, 6, and 7, I want to return to that third instruction, give voluntarily. I told you I was going to support that from another verse, and that's verse 8. Paul writes this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. I say this not as a command. Now, it wouldn't be uncharacteristic for Paul to make commands. He makes commands in a lot of places in Scripture. I I, I looked for a verse that he would have the most commands in, and I found, I'm not sure it's the most, but I found 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where he makes four commands in one verse. Paul's not afraid to make a command, but here he doesn't command them. Yet, it's clear he expects the Corinthians will give. So, what gives? Well, as I read this, I believe Paul thought it the better part of wisdom to refrain from issuing a direct command on the subject of giving. Why would he do that? Why not just tell them, command them to give? Well, as I see it, a command diminishes the voluntary act of the giving. If it was to command, the giving would become a tax. That's not what Paul wants. It seems Paul desires that our expression of giving correspond to our understanding of God's grace toward us. And this can only be determined in the heart or the conscience of the believer. I've read it twice already, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. It seems appropriate suppose at this moment to address what we call tithing, kind of as a sidebar, just say a couple things about tithing. The word tithing is is used in the church. Uh, Sometimes the word tithing is synonymous with offerings. You hear that phrase, tithes and offerings. Probably heard that before. Um, But these words are, they're not synonymous. They they actually speak of two different things. Uh, The word tithe means a tenth. 
The practice of tithing is the practice of giving a tenth of your income or your resources to the Lord or to the church. The practice is found in the Old Testament, but is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. Again, nowhere in the New Testament are Christians commanded to give a tenth of their income or their resources. Where the New Testament, what the New Testament does suggest are the things we're covering this morning. Things like this. Give sacrificially, give joyfully, give voluntarily. That's what the New Testament suggests, the New Testament teaches. We shouldn't be surprised that where the Old Testament suggests a law or gives us a law, give a tenth of everything, the New Testament suggests a grace. Give from the heart. We shouldn't be surprised that that's what we find in Scripture. Again, nowhere in the New Testament are Christians commanded to give a tenth of their income to the church. And in our passage this morning, what Paul is doing, instead of giving us a command, what to give, the right amount to give, Paul is using the generosity of a church, the generosity of the Macedonians, to inspire the Corinthians to give. Paul is trying to build upon the faithfulness of this local church, the Macedonians, clear that the church in Philippi and in Thessalonica and Berea, they were committed to this ministry of grace. It's absolutely clear, given their circumstances. Now, Corinthians, what about you? Will you finish this collection? Again, at verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that's the Macedonians, but to prove by their example that your love also is genuine. This is less of a challenge, at least the way I see it. It's less of a challenge and more of a celebration. Paul has already affirmed the love of the Corinthians. He's already said that they excel in all these different ways. They've already demonstrated their faithfulness. They're excelling, and in verse 8, Paul knows, they, like the Macedonian church, will continue to excel by finishing the collection to the saints in Macedonia, or excuse me, the saints in Jerusalem. He's optimistic, based on this example, that they will partner with the local church and give. Now, I stated the big idea of this text this way, we began, using two examples, Paul gives us three instructions on giving. First example was the Macedonian church. And the second example, of course, is Christ, is Jesus. If you thought the Macedonians set a good example of sacrificial, joyful, and voluntary giving, well, there's a stronger example. I think it's fair to say that the, the preeminent example, the greatest example ever of grace, of generosity, of giving, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. It's a profound verse. Now when Paul says Christ was rich, I assume he has in mind Christ's pre-incarnate state. I assume that's what he's thinking about there. That is, the condition before he became a man, when he was with God in heaven. 
And when Paul says that Christ became poor, I assume he has in mind Christ's incarnate state, the time in which he became a man, or more carefully, when the eternal Son forever uh, took on the nature of a man. And the poverty of Christ is specifically demonstrated at the cross of Christ, as Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin, poor, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God, that we might become rich. This is the central truth of the gospel. God became a man, a person of Jesus, and and died as a substitute for all those who would believe in him. That is the good news that we celebrate in the church. By placing our faith in Him, belief in Him, by acknowledging that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that substitute, that death becomes our death. He dies in our place. And we can have eternal life. This is the greatest news ever. And Paul uses this as the the preeminent example, the greatest, most superior example of giving. Earlier I quoted Barclay, no no gift can be in any real sense a gift unless the giver gives with it a bit of himself. That's why personal giving is always the highest kind of giving, Barclay continues, and that is the kind of giving of which Jesus Christ is the supreme example. Here's the point, and here's Paul's point. The gospel, the gospel is the grounds of our giving. The gospel is the grounds for our giving. It was the grace of Jesus, as seen in his incarnation and death, that Paul appeals to with the Corinthians. George Guthrie writes, The Corinthians can be like Jesus in meeting the needs of the moment. They can embrace the charity of Christ's Spirit, deny themselves, even as Jesus did in the incarnation, and meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And this message is not only for the Corinthians. This message is for anyone who believes in the gospel. It's for us. For, for us to follow Christ is to follow Him down a path of extravagant, grace-filled giving. Not as a law, as we've seen. Not as a law, but as a love. Remember John ten eighteen. Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. That's the spirit of Jesus. That's the spirit of our giving. John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No one made him do it. Using the idea of tithing, Tim Keller writes, Jesus, who at infinite cost gave us not just a tithe of his wealth, he didn't give us just a tenth of his wealth. 
He gave all of it. This gives us the security and joy to give away our wealth since only real long-term security is to be rich in Him. Oh, I want to understand that. When, I, when you and I see the, the ground of our giving in the gospel, we loosen the idols that exist in our heart. We free ourselves to fully, to fully embrace extravagant gospel giving. We have no need of worldly riches. We need only to be rich in Christ. Let others' worldly riches prize. I scorn this earthly clod. My portion is above the skies, my Savior and my God. No, I realize we have to close. So, we move to close this morning. Here in this passage, we've discovered three instructions on giving. Give sacrificially, give joyfully, and give voluntarily. These are helpful. If we were to continue, there are other things we might learn from this passage. We have more time. We could kind of explore some of those. In verses 11 and 12, we learn that our giving should be proportional. It's another instruction that Paul gives us. Our giving should be proportional. That is, we are to give according to what we have in proportion to our resources, not in proportion to other people's resources, but ours. If we were to look at the close of 2 Corinthians, we would discover that we are to give systematically. That is, there should be some kind of pattern to our giving. Give sacrificially, give joyfully, give voluntarily, give proportionally, give systematically. These are all kind of principles that you can extract from this book on, uh, as it relates to the topic of giving. And all these are good, but nothing strikes us like an illustration, like an example, which is why Paul doesn't command these things. But he gives us these wonderful illustrations, these wonderful examples. The example of the Macedonians was a good example. The example of Christ, that is a great example. It's the highest example. I've tried to show how these examples might demonstrate themselves in our lives, that by looking at the sacrificial generosity of the Macedonians... The sacrificial generosity of Jesus, you and I might also be inspired to give. I hope you are. John Piper writes What is God looking for in this world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted ad, it is a help available ad. Nor is the call to Christian service a help-wanted ad. God is not looking for people to work for Him, but people who let Him work mightily in and through them. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. God is not a scout looking for the first draft choices to help His team win. He is an unstoppable fullback ready to take the ball and run touchdowns for anyone who trusts him to win the game. End quote. Giving is beautiful because it's an opportunity for you and me in one moment to model our Savior and to let him at the same time work mightily through us. 
We model his giving and we allow him to, to just move through us in complete dependence on him. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful act of worship of really what it is. It's an opportunity to declare that we believe the discipline of giving, like the gospel, is a help available ad. I'm giving away what I have, and I know that God will meet every need. His provision will be there for me. God doesn't need our giving. Exodus 19.5, the earth is the Lord's. What God scours the earth for are those who will loosen their grip on the things of this world. Those who are willing to hand the ball off to Him. Those who are willing to let Him win the game. Church, let us give sacrificially, let us give joyfully, and let us give voluntarily with our eyes, of course, fixed on Jesus. Amen.